This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, my name is Ian Davidson. I'm talking about art, story and mind. I begin by acknowledging the first people of the unceded Aboriginal country around me. The Yuggera people were the first inhabitants of Brisbane, and their descendants continue to live here. Likewise, if I were in San Diego, I would acknowledge the Kumeyaay people, the native tribes who were once the sole owners of the unceded land where this meeting is at home. Archaeologists should always be mindful of and respectful to and about the indigenous people whose land we occupy, whose past we study, and to whose future we might make a small contribution. Here is the two-tweet take-home message. The role of art in anthropogeny cannot be understood by using concepts from modern students of art, since art theory and art philosophy have moved a long way from anything that led to them. Our goal is to understand how the modern concepts arose in hominin and human evolution. The fundamental point is that art is about a material intervention in relationships between people and the stories that define those relationships. There is, a, there is fascinatingly little evidence of the use of material in relationships among apes, but we cannot engage in storytelling with apes. Really importantly, once people started to represent scenes, the art could stand alone without the artist, and the observers could infer their own understanding. The art seems to have an implicational meaning of its own. There are five steps of the story. First, we need a definition of art, which will encompass the early examples and yet lead us to a definition we can recognise. I will briefly make some points about claims for art among modern apes, and indeed other modern animals, in the wild and in captivity. I will run through some examples of early art from the archaeological record, and in the concluding two sections, I will summarise the implications of the first part of the talk for understanding what art is and how it came to be. I will end with some simple points about why scenes make a difference to the way humans see the world. What is art? Let's start with how art works. An artist makes a mark, they communicate with someone else about it, and that other person is able to see the mark and say something about it. It works for any form of art. Art is about people making marks meaningful and others understanding that is the case. From this, my definition is, art is the making and marking of surfaces where the implicational meaning of the images does not encode the full propositional meaning of the artist. An Oxford Dictionary definition instead emphasises qualities such as skill, imagination, beauty or emotional power, although it is circular to identify that creativity through skill and imagination, as we do. Our task is to investigate how these definitions came to be related. John Robb distinguished modern art, Art 1, with a capital A, from archaeological art, which I call Art 2. There is a third category, archaeological evidence that might or might not be on the way to becoming art, which I call Art 3. 
How do things that are called art, art one, in the modern world, compare with art three? Most works of art have a degree of uniqueness, even when a single artist, Picasso, paints a series of self-portraits, such as the ones on the right. In art three, we need repetition for us to recognise that the production is intentional, the things on the left. In art one, the work generally stands alone and is judged on those merits. For some, but not all, the skill in the production of art one is shown through the resemblance between subject and object, while in art three, any meaning of the image is originally conveyed by speech acts by the producers. But an art object, by persisting as a material object, can stand alone such that observers can appreciate it separately from the producers. Rock and cave art gain some of their force from being persistent in the environment. But in Art 1, much of the force derives from its transferability. It can be moved from one context to another, and it can be bought and sold. Art 3 required social interaction between producers and observers, while Art 1 is open to all who can pay. What precursors might there have been in for the distinctiveness of human art among the last common ancestor of humans and African apes? Given evolution by selection from a range of variation, it is not necessarily best to consider only chimpanzees as an analogy for the LCA, although in practice that is what we do. In addition, many animals, such as dolphins in this example, have produced marks on paper when interacting with humans. Those experiments depend absolutely on the judgment of the humans interacting with the animals. Nearly 20 years ago, I worked with others to consider what was involved with the evolution of human cognition from an LCA with abilities similar to a chimpanzee. We showed that it was possible to analyse chimpanzee behaviour to show that their actions have semantic meanings, to use Fillimore's term, with the same case roles as among people. And the examples are all there in that table if you can stop the video to look at them. In captivity, ever since Desmond Morris's experiments with Congo in London Zoo, such as this picture, mark making by chimpanzees and other animals has been said to be a sign of the similarity between the animals and the humans. More recent work shows that when captive chimpanzees are given the opportunity to make marks, they do not just do so at random. Ingenious humans can tease out some regularities, but it is not so clear that the chimpanzees assign any meaning to them. The captive chimpanzee Moja produced this scribble with the gardeners, who said it was an image of a bird. I think it looks like a TV performer. The ape was probably fortunate not to know that. Noble and I discussed the issues involved in accepting such a claim about the meaning of a similar set of lines. The understanding could only come from the humans in that interaction. Curiously, the different set of lines was also said to be a bird. The same restriction on interpretation applies to the archaeological record, of course. We cannot ask dead people about their intention. In the wild, there are a few recorded instances from chimpanzees in their natural habitat, that might be related to art. The best documented is the practice of creating stone accumulations in particular trees. That occurs at four temporary research sites in West Africa, but was not reported from all other sites 
of long or short-term study in Africa. Related behaviour has been observed in zoos with one chimpanzee hoarding rocks to throw at zoo visitors. And just draw your attention to the fact that more authors wrote that paper than have actually uh, than the stones that have been thrown in the in the study. In addition, there is a single observation of the use of a knotted skin in the manner of a necklace. It may be that the single instance of a knot is just as significant significant as the possible use as an ornament. Interpreting the archaeological record needs similar cautions. The earliest specimen generally cited is the engagingly attractive unmodified pebble from South African site of Makapanskat, which was collected by Australopithecines more than two and a half million years ago. All modern people are familiar with the idea of seeing a thing as something other than the thing itself, seeing objects as representation of subjects. A carved stone as a human thinker seated on a rock, or marks on canvas as a picture of sunflowers. Our human ability to see one thing as another means that we can see the markings on the pebble as representations of a hominin or human face. If you are looking for it, you can see a face on the tree. But does that mean that the ability existed in a creature that was not even in the same genus as us? It is an achievement of humans, not an affordance of the object. All of the other evidence for early art and its predecessors is very late in the process of evolution of humans from those common ancestors, particularly in the most recent split from chimpanzees. That evidence occurred within the last couple of climatic cycles of the more than 20 cycles since the emergence of the genus Homo. I suggest all of the evidence that is reliable is from the last of those cycles of generally low sea level within the last 100,000 years. And they occur around the world in instances that are isolated, with the exception of the cluster of South African specimens and perhaps some Neanderthal examples in Europe, and at times when low sea level made substantial differences to the landforms, especially in Sunda and Sahel. European Neanderthals appear to have engaged in substantial behaviour that looks like symbol use, including the creation of rock structures deep inside a cave, use of feathers and shells, use of ornaments, rock marking by engraving, and mark making with ochre inside caves. Does this indicate a capacity for art? One view would be that despite several hundred thousand years of separate evolution, Neanderthals and humans converged on similar solutions to the problems of living. Explaining how that was possible without invoking a teleological progress is more difficult. We can also put the early marked objects onto a phylogeny. This is a phylogenetic tree derived from the statistics of evidence from ancient genomics. While the Makapanskat pebble is right at the base, or in this case the top, of the uh, tree of the, of the divergence of hominid, hominid variation, the trinil incised shell from Indonesia was made at the likely time of divergence between the lineages that led to Neanderthals in Europe and those that led to all other people. The dates for genetic divergence of modern groups outside Africa are all of the same order as the dates for the earliest cave art or the use of a boat to get to Australia or the emergence of ritual burial in Australia. On this telling, both the variety of Neanderthal marking and the consistency of African mark making 
seemed to be separated from the achievements of the earliest people to leave Africa during the last time of generally low sea levels. So what does this tell us about art in any of its manifestations? Most importantly, mark-making by itself is not all that art is. These kids are not just looking at their phones. They are finding the answers to their school assignments about what they can find of the meaning of Rembrandt's The Night Watch. They don't need to look at the picture, they can listen to the stories. Duchamp's fountain, of course, was surrounded not only by controversy, but by comment on the purpose of presenting a urinal as a work of art. The storytelling and the history of the piece became as important as the work itself. And as for Rothko, what can one say? I can say nothing, but we know that Rothko could. In essence, even in the modern world, the art is embedded within a culture that talks about and tells stories about the works. And the acceptance of the fountain and Rothko's paintings as art results from an expectation within our culture that the observer should be able to appreciate the work because it is presented as art and that it may mean more than that which can be seen on the surface. In fact, it is possible to represent a single category of object, in this case birds, or none, in a thousand different ways. Some are easily interpreted from their iconic resemblance to their subject. Others require a story for their identification. All carry a story through the embedding of the object and the subject in the lives, cultures and histories of the observers. And most of them do. Crucially, as exemplified by the Wonka Madla woman Mrs Hansen, illustrating in the sand her song about traditional myths for her daughter and me, the song makes the meaning of the drawings plain. As Nancy Munn documented, a simple sign such as a circle can have multiple meanings. The meaning is in the performance, the image, the meaning and the story are irrevocably intertwined. All this means that what emerged during and through Art 3 was that the persistence of marks in the environment, made in repeated patterns by people, allowed them to carry stories, and I suggest made our minds. In an earlier analysis, I took the semantic meaning argument that compared humans and chimpanzees and showed the same case roles for early stone toolmaking. Importantly, six of those roles leave enduring material products. That sort of observation led McGrew and me to posit that the material remains created a new environment of opportunity and contributed to niche construction for early hominins. We see this as an anomaly, not analogy, between chimpanzee behaviour and early hominin behaviour. Something similar happened with the making of marks. There were physical traces of the agency, counter-agency, object and association between the action and the location, sufficient to identify the statistical regularities between mark and thing. But there are a couple of anomalies. First, the instrumental role depends on the perception of resemblance between the mark and an object. The engagement of the artist with an audience entails the communication of some information from the mark maker to that audience. Most importantly, this information is not about the mark, but about the resemblance between the object and the mark. And finally, the association with place depends upon the memory of the resemblance 
and probably the story. Phil Barnard developed a nine-subsystem model of human cognition, which emphasises the interaction of subsystems within the mind. All but one of those individual subsystems interact with sensory perceptions from outside and produce sensory outputs to the outside. The internal workings can be simplified to become the working memory model of the mind. Importantly, the external relations can be with the minds of other people, encapsulating the social mind position, or with materials external to the body, encapsulating the external storage model. But the internal subsystem, labelled propositional here, does not interact directly with external inputs, and it is crucial to the reflectivity that, so far as we know, is unique to humans. It is at the heart of the anomalies I have just pointed to. Barnard and others argued that the mind of apes could be modelled with only six of the nine subsystems, and the logic of the construction of those simpler models of cognition also produced an argument about how the nine subsystem model evolved from a supposed six subsystem last common ancestor. I have previously offered a narrative that traces the steps that must have been necessary to move from hominins leaving signs of their presence to making marks, to using marks to convey meaning through pattern and repetition, to the use of repetition in ritual, with a side transition from making repeated marks to creating the circumstances for recognising iconicity in what were otherwise primarily indexical marks. The final two stages to get from iconicity to art in a modern sense were the production of iconic marks in a way that observers could identify through nuances in the representation of the agency of the creatures iconically represented in scenes. And in doing so, the necessity of the nexus between the producer and the observer was broken. And yet, this untethering of the image from the social context of its production left the possibility that the scene could often be interpreted in various different ways. It seems to me that that is what post-Renaissance art developed, the delicious uncertainty of interpretation. Thank you. That's all I have to say. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.